last week, well, we've been looking at the life of, of David, and last week we looked particularly at the story of David and Bathsheba. And uh, in, that was in chapter 11. And up until chapter 11, we saw David is uh, really connected to the heart of his father, really connected um, in lots of ways, through the way that he ruled as a king, through his worship, um, through just seeking out a relationship with the father. And then we hit chapter 11, and all of a sudden, David just falls, and David falls hard, and David falls fast, and it is ugly, and it is hard to read. It's hard to watch. It's hard to imagine um, with uh, what happened to David in chapter 11. So we know that David was, um, he was the king of Israel, and, and the chapter started off last week with, in the spring, when kings go off to war. But the problem was David didn't go off to war. When all the other kings went off to war, because that was seasonally when the weather was best to go and, and fight, uh, David stayed back at his palace, and we don't know exactly why. Um, the kingdom was relatively peaceful. They had one obstinate nation that was still giving them a little bit of problems, but they pretty much had that nation under control. They had siege to their, their city. And uh, so David maybe thought that, hey, things are good. I can just send Joab, my main man, out, and Joab can take care of things, and I can just kind of relax for a little bit because things are, things are good. I've done well. But David was a military leader, first and foremost, and a military leader goes to war, and David did not. So uh, we find David um, on the roof of his palace taking a walk after his nap, and meanwhile his army is out fighting and laying siege to the city of Rabbah. And uh, David ends up looking across and seeing this beautiful woman bathing on another rooftop. It's Bathsheba. He calls for her to come. He meets her. He knows her family, it turns out. And David still um, proceeds to pursue what he wants, which is his fleshly pleasure. Bathsheba gets pregnant. David tries to cover up his sin, and he ultimately has Uriah, her husband, murdered to have that sin covered up. So David, lots of manipulation, lots of just dark, um, hidden stuff in chapter 11 that we see in the heart of David. And this was a man who pursued the heart of God. And as we talked about in chapter 11, um, God wasn't around for David. David was not looking for God. Um, David was not pursuing God. God was just kind of standing back and watching this whole thing play out. At the end of uh, the sermon last week, we, uh, if we get my, the, the PowerPoint up there with the chart on it, we looked at, um, we compared David's temptation with Bathsheba and all the fallout of that with Jesus' temptation um, when he is taken out into the desert and then te- tempted three times by uh, the devil. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we see these differences. So um, David, in 2 Samuel, was in the wrong place. He was supposed to be out to war, because the spring is when kings go off to war, but he wasn't. He was in the palace. Jesus, on the other hand, was led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted in the desert. So Jesus was where he was supposed to be. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert. Um, Big difference. Um, David, in 2 Samuel, he is starting from a, str- a place of personal strength. He is the king. He can do what he wants. He wants that woman. He takes her. So he had his personal strength that he abused, which ultimately led to weakness in his personal strength. Jesus, on the other hand, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the desert. He fasts for 40 days 
So he's at this point of physical weakness, spiritual weakness, spiritual, physical weakness through his fasting so that God would be strong in him, so that God would be strong in him. Very different, very different than what David was up to. David had these cravings. Um, David craved for physical pleasure with Bathsheba. And so he went after that. His cravings would not be denied. The first temptation that Satan gives Jesus is turn these stones into bread because you're so hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. Turn these stones into bread. But Jesus, not to be taken by the enemy, replies, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, whoa. That sounds like pleasure to me. I hope that that's not like screaming in pain. That sounds good. Um, if anybody feels the need to check that out, go ahead just to kind of. Um, so, 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 so Jesus resists the cravings that the enemy was putting right in front of him. The second temptation. Um, for Jesus, the second t- temptation was that the enemy, Satan, took him to the highest point of the temple. And he said, throw yourself off and let God save you. But Jesus knew that he didn't need to follow that temptation. And Jesus' response was, the the scriptures say, you must not test the Lord your God. Because Jesus knew where salvation came from. He didn't need to put God to the test in it. He knew his heart was connected to the Father. David, on the other hand, he looked to save himself. He commits this sin with Bathsheba, so now he realizes he's in a tight spot, so he needs, he knows he needs to be saved from this, so what does he do? He tries to save himself by manipulating the situation. Ultimately, he has Uriah killed. So uh, when we try to save ourselves, it usually goes worse. But Jesus knew, Jesus knew that his father saved. So then the third temptation is that the, and, uh, Satan takes Jesus to this highest point in Jerusalem, highest point in the city. And, uh, and he says, look at these kingdoms of the world. He's like, if you bow down and worship me, these kingdoms will all be yours, but you have to bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knew who he was to worship, even though he had these kingdoms laid out before him, this temptation. David, interestingly enough, on the palace roof, likely the highest point in Jerusalem at the time, on the palace roof, he's looking out when he should be off to war, and he's looking out at the kingdoms, the kingdom that is before him, his kingdom. And he's saying, this is mine. This is all mine. And that woman over there, I will have her too. I will have her too. This is mine. I, I own this. I own this. So he was worshiping himself and his power and authority that God had given him, but he had turned it to himself, and he worshiped himself. He worshiped himself. And when these two passages end, In uh, 2 Samuel 11, David is alone. He is alone at the end of 2 Samuel. Alone with only his uh, own sin as his company. Jesus, on the other hand, gets ministered to by the heavenlies after he resists the temptation. He gets ministered to by the heavenlies. So he's in relationship. He's being cared for. So very different pictures of David and Jesus. Now, David's human. Let's be realistic. He's, he's a sinful human being. Jesus is, is Jesus. But the point is Jesus knew the temptation. Jesus knew the temptation, and he resisted it. Um, the point here is, is that we, we are like David. We are like David. We are just as capable 
of worshiping, worshiping him with all of who we are, all of who we are, giving our worship to him, we're just as capable of falling into the deepest, darkest sin that we could imagine. And frankly, we're capable of falling into sin that we cannot even imagine. We are just like David. But because Jesus remained the pure, spotless lamb, because he faced every temptation that we would face, and because he focused on the Father, and because he knew what the word of God was about, and he knew his Father loved him dearly, the temptation did not get the better of him. And so Jesus could die on the cross as the pure, spotless lamb, and his blood could cover our sins. Temptation and sin did not own Jesus like it did David and like it can for us. We are capable of some ugly, ugly things like David was, but we can find healing. We can find healing in the blood of the Lamb. We read from Isaiah last week, and I want to read two verses from that passage, Isaiah 11, and this compares David and Jesus. Um, 11 verse 1 says, Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, Yes, a branch bearing fruit from the old root. Verse 10, in that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. And so, yes, David was a great king, but out of the line of David, he was also a sinful king, but out of the line of David will come this branch, and this branch is Jesus, and Jesus is the one who brings salvation. David doesn't bring salvation. Jesus does. Yes, David we can look to and say, what a godly man who went after God. But Jesus, Jesus is the one who brings salvation. And out of that same line, there comes Jesus. So we have this connection between David and Jesus, which is very beautiful. Now, let's, uh, let's go to um, 2 Samuel chapter 12, which is uh, where our text is for today. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. By the way, thanks of you who have prayed for me and my health, and I feel much better today. As of yesterday, I started gaining my energy back, so um, thank you so much, and hopefully we'll get through without too many nasty coughs into the microphone today. 2 Samuel chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then David said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. 
Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the, gra- on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill. They said, what drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. Jesus, you are the word. Uh, and as the, the word comes to us today, let it um, pierce deeply into who we are, to places that maybe we wall off, not let the word go. Uh, maybe we let the word go to our minds, but not to our hearts. Maybe we let the word go to our hearts, but not deep, deep into our spirits. God, let the word go deep into our spirits today. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So at the end of chapter 11, David is alone with only his sin for company. But things don't stay that way for long because, because God loves David. So God pursues David. Um, he doesn't abandon him. He doesn't wait for David to reach out. He goes after David. Um, but, but he goes after David in a confrontational sort of way through the prophet Nathan. So he sends Nathan to David because he loves David. And Nathan um, comes to David with this message. And it's not like a message of like, you know, here's some warm milk and a bowl of candy kind of message, right? It's like, it's a hard, hard message. And he tells this story about this rich guy who has all these sheep and all these cattle. And this poor guy who has this one little lamb that he loves dearly, like it's his own child. And this visitor comes into their town. And to be gracious host, to be a gracious host, the rich man is going to provide a meal, but instead of taking one of his sheep or one of his cattle, he goes to the poor man and takes this poor man's little lamb, kills it, serves it up as a meal for this rich man. David is irate. David is irate, which is good, because that means he's starting to uh, come around out of his darkness, because he's starting to connect with God's heart, God's heart, particularly in this case, for justice. Clearly, the situation that's been presented is an unjust situation. And David sees it as such, which is, which is really good. Because David in chapter 11 had no idea what justice was. He had no idea what God's justice was. It was all about David and what David wanted. But now he's starting to connect, reconnect, on some level with the heart of the Father. And he sees this selfish man um, as being, you know, selfish, unjust, uncaring, just evil. David recognizes it as such. So David begins to snap out of his personal darkness 
He begins to reconnect with concepts that flow from God's heart. Um, David first says, kill him. Kill that man. That is wrong on every level. Kill him. David would have been a, a judge for his people. People would have come to him to judge in certain cases. So David would have been good at this judging. He, he would know justice. So he's even fulfilling a role that he would have had in the past. Killing would have been over and above what the law would have required at the time. What the law required is what uh, is spoken in Exodus 22, which is um, if somebody steals somebody's sheep, then you repay that person for sheep, for the one that you stole. So David, after he gets really irate and wants to kill this guy, determines, okay, well, let's, let's go back to the law. So he's back to, to God's word. He remembers God's word. Okay, yeah, no, this guy needs to pay back four for the one that he took. Um, David was in a dark place, so it's good to see him coming back to life. And we may not think this is that big of a deal, but based on where David was not too long ago, we could see David responding by saying things like, oh, this guy had one little lamb. He should have stewarded his resources better. Or, oh, I can understand why the rich man would take that one little lamb. I mean, the rich man doesn't want to take his stuff. It's more valuable anyway. Or maybe this, uh, this poor guy should, should kind of be strong and not be such a coward and not let this guy take it from him. Be strong. Come on, step up. But David doesn't respond in any of those ways, which in the previous chapter, he would have been capable of. But now he sees the justice in it and the injustice in it. So he responds appropriately. He responds appropriately. He is not completely removed from the heart of the Father. He's in it. He's in it. We see David coming back. But then, then Nathan, then Nathan drops the bomb. He says, David, David, you are that man. You're that man that stole that little lamb. The Lord your God anointed you king over his chosen people. He anointed you king. He gave you the kingdom. He gave you the power and authority to rule in that kingdom, David. He saved you from Saul, who was after you, to kill you. He saved you from Saul. And if that hadn't been enough, David, if that hadn't been enough, he would have given you more. David, you had seven wives and ten concubines. If you wanted to have sex with someone, you could have had sex with one of them. But instead, you chose that little lamb over there. You took that little lamb, David, And you killed that little lamb's husband. And then Nathan continues, David, you know what all this shows? Do you know what this means? It means that you have despised the word of the Lord. The same word, David, that you held so closely to when Saul was chasing you and you were hiding in caves and that was your only hope. You thought you were going to die, but you held close to God's word. When you were surrounded by enemies... You held close to his word. That was the only hope that you had and you held tight and he rescued you. He saved you. But David, you have despised that word. You have despised the word of the Lord. David, God loves you. He loves you. That's why he sent me to tell you this stuff. Because he wants you back. You could try to figure it out on your own how to go back to him. You could try to do it with the work of your hands, but you can't. You and I both know 
that we're not capable of that kind of thing? You cannot do it on your own, David. You can't. He sent me to tell you this stuff. He sent me to tell you this stuff so that your eyes would be opened and you could once again receive the truth from him. That you could once again find yourself in a place of worship that you used to know, David. And I know that you know that place. It may seem like a distant memory to you now. It may seem like a hard road back, but I know that you know that place of his truth. And I know you remember what it is to worship him. David, I'm not done yet. Just wait. I can see your tears, and I can see that you're affected by what's being shared. I can tell, but there's other things. David, there are consequences for what you have done. There are consequences. There have to be. God grieves over the loss of his daughter Bathsheba. He grieves over the loss of his son Uriah, killed for no reason. He grieves. A price must be paid, David. A price must be paid. And so your family will rebel against you. The swords of your family members will turn on one another. David, you slept with Bathsheba in secretly, in a secret place. David, you will have enemies that will sleep with your wives in plain view of your kingdom. David, I know this is hard, but there has to be consequences. There has to be. David, these consequences are so you can remember, that you have a constant reminder in front of you of what it means to be separated from the Lord. If there were no consequences, David, you would fall hard again because you're just a human. But these consequences will be painful reminders before you that you cannot afford to be separated from your dad again. So you can imagine David listening to this um, prophetic speech by Nathan and sitting there and taking it all in and feeling the emotion of it. And it hurts. It hurts David to hear it. And the truth, the truth hurts. It can hurt. But it's all starting to make sense to David. It's all starting to fit together for him. He is wrecked by what he has done. He is wrecked. But David doesn't choose to wallow in self-pity at this point. David instead makes a very bold and courageous choice, and that is to align his mind with the mind of the Father. He heard everything Nathan was sharing, and he was getting it. He was coming around. He repents. He repents. He aligns his mind with the mind of God. He turns from this way, and he turns back, and he aligns his mind with the mind of God. That's hard to do. That is hard. God, God created the space for him to do that by bringing Nathan to him. God didn't make David repent. David, David chose that, and it, and it was a hard choice, but he chose it because he aligned his mind with God's mind. Um, there are so many barriers that can keep that from happening for David or for us. Shame, guilt, I'm not worthy to be back in the Father's presence, Anger that I'm being confronted by somebody on my sin. But David doesn't let any of those barriers get in the way. And he aligns his mind with the mind of the Father. David takes the high road, which is also um, the hard road. Uh, Last summer, Jay preached on um, the concepts of repentance and forgiveness. 
And he presented this model that typically the way we do it is when we fall away from God, we realize and we go, oh man, I got to get back into God's good graces. And so I need to pursue deeper devotion. So I got to read my Bible and I got to pray and I got to be a good person. I got to do right things. And so once I get all that stuff going and the good things happening and flowing again, then, uh, then I confess, God, I've sinned. I'm really sorry. And maybe that's a real emotional thing and that's, that's okay. And then we repent and turn back to God and then God says, okay, you've done all the right things. Now I'll offer you my forgiveness. But Scripture doesn't present that kind of picture. That's a very man, um, I can do it myself kind of picture. Instead, there's, there's repentance like David does, where there's this turning back to God and a choosing to align our minds with his mind. And after Nathan gives David the speech, David gets it. He gets God's mind, and he knows that his mind is far from God's, and he knows that alignment needs to come. And then David confesses. He confesses in, a, in verse 13. It says, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And confession is, means seeing as God sees. So he turns towards God, and then, like, he, then he, he starts to know God because he's looking at God instead of walking away from God. And then he confesses. He sees what God sees. And what does God see? He sees that David has despised him, that David has walked away from him. And so David says what God already sees. God, I'm with you in this. I have despised your word. I have despised you. So David repents. He confesses. And then he finds himself in this place of deeper devotion which is a place that God has prepared for him. It's a place that was there all the time, but that David couldn't enter because he was so far from God's mind. He was so far from what God wanted. He had separated himself from God, and God wants him back. And he says, David, there's this place that's been here the whole time. Don't stay over there in your sin. Be here with me. And so when David walks through this process of repentance and confession, he finds himself Um, He finds himself in this place with the Father, a place that David knows well. It's a place that David knows well. David starts to to see things, perhaps, and this is reading between the lines in Scripture as Nathan is delivering his speech, like, oh my goodness. God is right. Like, I I treated Bathsheba like a piece of meat. I treated Uriah like I owned him, like he he was my property. Oh my goodness, what's wrong? What's wrong with me? That's, that's not how God loves his kids. That's not how God loves his kids. So David starts to get his mind aligned with God, and then he confesses and sees the situation, how God sees the situation. And then he enters into this place of deep devotion with the Father where forgiveness is extended to David. Forgiveness is extended. God desired strongly for David to align himself with God. He, God desired strongly for David to see as God see, to see as his father see Saul. But he can't make him do it. He can't make us do it. He provided this place. He provided a way back for David. But David had to make this choice, a courageous choice. There was a lot of barriers, but David made the courageous choice. And that's why we look to David and say, wow, David is a man after God's own heart. Despite the sin, David was courageous and he chose to go back to the heart of the Father despite the barriers that he could have put in the way, that David could have put in his own way. He chose to go back to the Father. 
we're not going to talk too much about what happens after that other than we see David just going to the Lord in prayer, like begging him to save his son. In fact, he, it says he lays out on the bare ground. So he does, ironically, what, what Uriah did when Uriah got called back to the palace. Uriah didn't go home and sleep with his wife. Uriah went down and slept on the ground with the palace guards. So David, instead of going back to his palace room, now David's kind of starting to kind of get this picture. Instead, he goes out and lays on the bare ground. And he cries out to the Lord, save my son. Please save him. I know you said there's consequences, but save him. David's fasting. And then his son dies. Then David immediately goes to the temple to worship. So we see David living out of these places that he lived out so much before. These familiar places that he finds himself back in. It's painful. But he's back home. He's back home. He's questioned by his advisors about his spiritual activity at this time. David, what are you doing? When your son was alive, you prayed like crazy, and now he's dead, and you're, you're done all that, and now you're eating. And, you know, David, David is just like, look, I wanted, to, I wanted to have a part in my son living. Now he's dead. And I'll see him someday. But all David was looking for was a reconnection with the father at that point. The people around him didn't understand David was reconnecting with his father. Um, you, you and I may feel at times far from God. Um, maybe it's because of some act that we've done, a sinful act like D- David, um, what's laid out for us in chapter 11 with David and Bathsheba. Um, maybe it's just over time we find ourselves falling away and then one, we realize that we're really far from God. We don't have that relationship. Like we've disconnected ourselves for whatever reason. Shame, guilt. I don't deserve to be in the Father's presence. Um, all these things that we make up that aren't true. And meanwhile, the Father's over here going, no, I have, I have a place for you. Like, I have a place for you. I love you. But you need, you need to come. You need to come to me, to that place. If you want to choose to be over here, then, then you're going to stay there. But I've prepared a place, and you can see it. You can look at it. You can be there. That place is for you. You are worthy. You are worthy of this place I prepared for you. I love you. Um, Courtney and I, when we went on our honeymoon 10, almost 11 years ago, we, uh, we had, were given this great gift by our families of some money to budget for our wedding and or for our honeymoon. And so we had wanted to go to Hawaii for our honeymoon. And so we saved up the biggest chunk of our money that we had to go um, to Hawaii on our honeymoon. And we were really excited about this. And so, uh, great gift from our families. And so we got there to Kauai, and it was nighttime. And we got to the hotel in our rental car, and then uh, we um, parked the car, and the hotel was kind of unassuming on the outside. And we walked inside to the hotel lobby, and it was grand and magnificent. I mean, it it was amazing. It was this open air lobby that just had ceilings that were, I don't know, 40, 50 feet tall, and their birds flying through. I think they were like remote control birds. They were, it was too perfect, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and the breeze, you know, the Hawaiian breeze is blowing through, and there's these huge pillars and marble and huge pieces of furniture. It was just magnificent. And Courtney says, oh, we can't stay here. And I was like, uh, this is our hotel. She's like, no, no, we cannot stay here. 
this is, this is, I, this is not, I, I, I'm not worthy of staying in this place. Like, this is uncomfortable. This is, there's gonna be all kinds of rich people here and we're, we're not gonna fit in. And I, look at this place. This, this is, I, we, I can't stay here. Look, look at it. It's, it's magnificent. It's huge. It's amazing. And she was for real. And I'm like, Corny, this, this is paid for. Like, we're staying here. Like, we don't have time to go make other arrangements. Like, this is our place. This is the place. Like, you are worthy of this place. We are worthy of this place. Let me see. So there's part of the hotel and some little man in the back. Um, big, huge pieces of artwork. Huge pillars. It was just awesome, right? And, uh, but, but the point is, is that, like, we were worthy to stay there. We were given a great gift by somebody to say, we want to give you this gift that you can go on this honeymoon, and, and it was paid for. It was all, we didn't have to do anything except be there and enjoy the goodness of it. But it was hard. There were some barriers. There were some barriers because it was like, this is too good for us. We don't deserve this. But we did. And that's the same thing that God says to David. He's like, I've, I've got this great place for you to be. And yeah, there's going to be pain in it because you're going to see the consequences of your sin. But like, David, this is way better than that. And you're worthy of being here. And David courageously says, yes, that is the place for me. That is the place for me. It's been prepared for me. I have sinned, but I am worthy of this because my God is good and my God saves me. I don't need to save myself anymore. Enough of that. It's too tiring. It's too weary. This is a place of rest, and that is where I will be. That is where I will be. Justin, you know, come on up. So Justin is now going to do some more teaching, um, not on this passage, but on Psalm 32, which is directly connected um, to this particular passage. Two of the biggest lies that we believe about forgiveness is one, that we don't need to be forgiven, that it doesn't really matter, which is false. The second lie that we believe is that we won't be forgiven, that we've done something so heinous that God will not forgive us of that. So let's repent of that together as we walk through Psalm 32 very quickly. It's on the back of your bulletin, so if you want to get your bulletin out, or you can look in the Word as well. Um, <clears throat> can you put the Exodus passage up, please? I want to start with this passage, however, first, because it's a reminder of who God says He is. It's a reminder of who God says He is. It's on the back of your bulletin as well. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this already is, is addressing these two deceits, that it does matter that we have sinned, for the Lord is just and good. And because of that, he will not clear the guilty. 
But then this other deceit that we have is that we think we can't be forgiven, which the whole first part of this says, no, that is not true. So let's quickly step through Psalm 32. We're going to do this as a congregation. We're going to read it. I'm going to write some things on for you to see and just see the interconnectivity of who God is and uh, the way it walks through forgiveness in this psalm. So, um, Gene, if you can do the first, the first ones, please. And then if we can do this together, Matt, if you can start us as far as reading this as a congregation. So first of all, we have, we have the, three, the three types of sin that are there. We have transgression, we have sin, we have iniquity. We have transgression, which is willful rebellion that he forgives us of. We have sin, which is this imperfection, this missing of the mark, which he also forgives. And we have this iniquity, which is this evil doing that we can take part of. All of these things, it talks about how he forgives us in slightly different ways. And it also says, blessed is the man or the woman who in their spirit is no deceit, that they're not trying to cover this up knowing what they have done in that. So the next uh, verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent... And so here we have this picture that when we keep silent, when we are in this deceit, the picture here is that the Lord's hand is heavy upon us because he is just and good. David sinned. It's not like God saw David sinning and was just like, eh, it's okay. No, because God is just and good in that. And so there has to be this, this justice that happens. So the, the, the hand of the Lord is heavy upon the psalmist. And then we also have this picture, that word strength there. The only time it's used in that way in the um, Old Testament Hebrew, it, it kind of has this picture of a juicy bit, you know, this juicy piece of fruit. So it's like this, this thing that's supposed to be filled with life, filled with strength, is left out in the summer and is just shriveled up. And that is what deceit does to us. That is what sin and transgression and everything does to us. It saps our strength. It, it, it weighs on our bones. We groan, even if it's not externally. But it affects us greatly in that. But, verse 5, next. I acknowledged... So this is great, this is great, this is great, this is... This is great. So what we have here is all these connecting things then. Um, So what happens is that we transgress and and we sin and we are filled with iniquity. And what it's saying here is is that the psalmist confessed his transgression. He acknowledged his sin. He did not cover up the things that he did. And then look at verses 1 and 2 again. What does the Lord do? We confess, acknowledge, and and do not cover. And here it says, and you forgave me, and the Lord forgave me the iniquity of my sin. Looking at back at verse 1 and 2, we see that the Lord forgives transgression, that he covers our sin, and that he does not count 
our iniquity against us. Repent. He forgives us. Don't fall into that deceit that he doesn't and that it doesn't matter that we need to be forgiven. Next verses, please. Therefore... And not only does God forgive us, he builds into us. Like, you see what's going on here then? So not only does, um, does he forgive us, but he is also our hiding place. He is a place of security for us. Not only that, but he preserves us in a sen- when, when trouble is all around. And he surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. So not only does he take away forgiveness, literally, to carry away our sin. He carries away our sin. Not only does he do that, but he builds into us as well, because he is good and he is loving. Next, please. I will instruct you. So here again, the love of the Lord continues. So not only does he forgive and cover and not counter iniquity against us, not only is he a hiding place who who, who he preserves us and he surrounds us with shouts of deliverance, but he also continues with us and instructs us and teaches us and counsels us. He doesn't just forgive us and then abandons us. The Lord does not abandon his children. This is awesome. This is awesome. Next, many are the sorrows. Team, you can come up. DJ, can you put that? Can you put that back up, please? So many are the sorrows of the wicked. We saw that if we keep sin and deceit within us, we shrivel away inside. We shrivel away. There is no life within us. But the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So now, confess, acknowledge, don't cover up your sin. Okay, great. But then we get to do something even better. We get, something to, we get to do something even better besides confess and acknowledge and do not cover up our sin because that's still doing something towards sin. Now we get to be glad. In who? In the Lord. We get to be glad in the Lord. We can rejoice and we can also shout for joy because of the things that he has done for us. It's awesome. We go from this and end up here because of who God is in that. Okay? Two more things in the psalm. Security. Do you notice that this is awesome, this this covered? None of these words are spelled right, by the way, because I'm going really quick. So don't, like, take a picture of this afterwards and be like, what is, is he swearing at me? Um, so we got this covered here, and we got this do not cover here. It's this contrast here. When we try to cover up ourselves, we cannot cover up ourselves. And just like David did, it led to more and more and more deception. It led to more and more and more sin. You cannot cover yourselves. 
But when we uncovered ourselves, we weren't left out to dry there. Because then God covers us. And when God covers us, we are covered. Where is our security? Self or in God? Amen. Also, the psalm is a source of hope. Why? In verse, uh, let's say it's 6, because I don't know. In verse 6, it says, Therefore, let um, all who are godly seek you at a time you may be found. If you are hearing my voice, if you are hearing the psalm right now, God can be found now. Okay, you are not dead, first of all, or the Lord has not come back and set up the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and new earth. I'm pretty sure that didn't happen yet. So there is time. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today. Now is the day of your salvation. And we carry all this deceit or this unbelief that we can be forgiven or if it doesn't matter that we're forgiven. Those two lies around with us and they weigh on us. They weigh on us so much that we don't even remember the thing that we did because it was 20 years ago, but yet they still weigh on us somewhere, somewhere inside of us. Also, a source of, a source of uh, hope in this is that love. This, the, uh, the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds those who trust in him. Those who trust in them, in him, surrounds, surrounds. So I encourage you this week, along with the passage that Matt shared, to continue to read Psalm 32, to continue to look at the awesomeness of the interconnectivity of who God is in it and how he overcomes all these things, to think about the deceit that is in our lives that we believe that we can't be forgiven or that we don't think that it's important for us to be forgiven, to seek God, to repent, to confess, and enter into deeper devotion with him. So I'd like to read uh, before the team starts again. This is from 1 John 1, verse 5. It's in your bulletin as well. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 19, says this, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. To the body of Cornerstone, you are blessed. You are blessed because you are reconciled to God. Despite 
the length of the distance, whatever it may have been perceived on your part, he has brought you into his own presence because you are worthy. And you are worthy because he made you. He created you, and he made you worthy to be in his presence. God, I pray that we would continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. That we would not forget, God, that you have reconciled everything to you. That our sin is covered by your blood on the cross. There is nothing that we can possibly do except realize it and turn to you and see as you see and speak as you speak, Lord. You have prepared a good place for us. Let us walk forward into that place, Jesus. And we pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.